0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Great to see you all here this morning, and
1: uh, great to see you online. Sorry about uh, first service; we had some technical issues, and so hopefully everything's working correctly. We're streaming our online service, the second service today for 11 o'clock. You know, this past week, um, I, I was helping a, a young lady who had uh, blown out her tire uh, in our parking lot or outside our parking lot. And she pulled into our parking lot, so we're changing the tire and everything. And she remarked to me, you know, it's and we were talking about how it's cooler. At least it's not so hot out as it's been, and it's September and all these things. And and uh, and she basically said, yeah, it's September. The year's just gotten away from us, and it's gotten to this place where like it's almost over. I can't believe it. And then she said, well, maybe it's a good thing that it is coming to a close because we just want to move on uh, past this year to 2020. Because, of course, this year has been, uh, it's been trying, to say the least, it has been difficult in many different ways for us. I think as we've moved through, one of the things that we're excited about is being able to gather again. I think we're starting to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel regarding COVID. And so we get uh, into this place where we're in September. We're towards the end of the year. And then we move into probably what might be the most contentious part of the year, Uh, And I'm talking about the American election season as we're moving into looking towards November, getting into this. And depending on how you're looking at it, this may uh, be the kind of thing that, um, that may be the most contentious and divisive time of the entire year as we move into this series. And for you, it may seem like just a fitting end uh, to a year that has just been so topsy-turvy and conflicted in many ways. In other ways, it may seem like a disastrous way to end this year because it's just another thing that we're adding on to our plate that may bring complexity and dissension and difficulty. Now, I'm sure we have people in this room and people who are watching online who have all kinds of different approaches to this upcoming pol- political season. Maybe you are uh, concerned, and maybe you're so concerned that you're even you would classify yourself as being fearful fearful of the way that things are going to go, fearful of maybe continued division that might be happening in our country, fearful of what the results might be of an election in November. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're just confused. You're thinking to yourself, you know, there are so many voices that are talking at me. I'm not really sure how to navigate through this. I'm a Christian who's trying to follow Jesus, but at the same time, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like as far as my political engagement goes. And maybe you're at a place where you're just angry. And maybe you know exactly why you're angry. You could make up like a list of 100 reasons exactly why you are angry with things. Or maybe you're just angry because that just kind of feels like what everybody is right now. We're in a climate of people just being angry, and so you just kind of are like that as well. Well, I want to say this. I have a theory about this, and I'm going to explain it this morning, about why we are so fearful, why we seem so confused, why we feel these emotions of anger. But I will say this. It, It comes from, I think, the same place. I really believe that we are taking the wrong voices to heart when it comes to this season and that that is causing us to be unduly feared uh, unduly fearful afraid uh, angry and also confused all at the same place all at the same time and look it's not that hard to, to, to actually find those voices that are coming at you from all different directions in fact you don't even have to look for them you get an alert on your phone a notification on your phone You check that thing, it's in your pocket, you pull it out, you check that thing, and all of a sudden it's a political post. You're going through Facebook just to catch up with friends, and all of a sudden it's just political post after political post after political post. You're trying to keep up with the news, and and, and maybe you're on Twitter and you see this news feed that comes through, and it has nothing but all kinds of political opinions telling you how you should live, how you should believe, and what you should do. We don't even have to go looking for these voices. They are trying to tell us how to behave and how to respond in every single situation. And look, as a result, it's causing many of us to be more fearful, more angry, and more confused. And I think what we should all agree on, no matter what, we, what perspective we come from this morning, is that if we are confused and angry and afraid, that it is not the voice of Jesus that is causing us to feel that way. And that's what we're going to talk about through this series. We are starting a series this morning called A Perfect Union. We're going to go through over the next 12 weeks, it's going to carry us through the election season, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous, well-known sermon, really the most well-known sermon in human history, from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to listen to, among all the voices that are warning for our attention and for our response, we're going to listen to the voice of Jesus instead through this season. And I want to encourage you because I really believe that as we do, those feelings of fear and those feelings of of, of anger, those feelings of confusion will give way to freedom, to joy, to compassion, to love, and to a hope through this season. And so we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus for the next 12 weeks and listen to what he has to say. And look, coincidentally and maybe even providentially, this is a sermon that is actually political in nature. And not politics in the sense of Democrat or Republican, right or left. This is a kingdom politics, a kingdom of God politics that transcends both of those things and all of those things. It's a different kind of politics that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple weeks ago, when we were going through our Crucial Questions series, and I was talking about science and the Bible, I mentioned that Science is something that throughout my life I've really tried to avoid to the degree that when I got to high school in my senior year, I looked for a loophole in the graduation requirements so that I could avoid taking a physics class that I had to take to graduate. And, um, but I will say this for, when it comes to public policy and politics, I'm quite a bit different on this. Public policy and politics is something that I've been interested in since, ever since I can remember, even before I knew I was gonna be a pastor. In fact, my undergraduate degree is actually in public policy because I wanted to pursue that as a career. But I will say this, that I'd rather, in a lot of ways, I'd rather talk about science up here than I would about politics on a Sunday morning. For at least a couple of reasons. First of all, politics is really difficult because it talks about how people behave and what they believe, and it's really hard to nail that down because it changes all the time. At least in science, there's laws that you can deal with. You can get a handle on that. But politics is a little harder to nail down, and really for a second reason. Because because politics talks about how we believe and how we behave, it becomes very personal for people. And because of that, it becomes very volatile. And I don't know if you've noticed this before, but people can tend to get really fired up about their politics. And so as we talk about this throughout this series... That's a challenge that we're facing. And when I told my wife, my wonderful wife Katie, that we'd be going through a series on politics and the Bible right? uh, in this season, she, her first question to me was, are you trying to get fired? <laughs> and no, I'm not trying to get fired. I told her that, and I'll tell you this this morning. I'm not trying to get fired. I'm not even trying to be controversial for the sake of being controversial. Believe me, the last thing I want to do is be controversial right now for the sake of being controversial. We've had enough to deal with this year. But I will say this, I have looked at this and I've prayed about it and I realize that as we go through this series that I don't want media, I don't want social media, I don't want what's out there discipling our people here at North. I want us to be discipled by the words of Jesus. I don't want, yeah, amen, exactly. I don't want the words of what's out there to be forming our hearts. I want the words of our king to be forming our hearts, the one true king who is Jesus. So as we go through this series, my concern for all of us is not whether you are Democrat or Republican, it's not even so much who you decide to vote for in November. My concern is this, because I'm not a a politician, I'm not a political strategist, I'm a pastor. And my concern is that Jesus really is your king. And that your king is more important than your president. And that Jesus and his kingdom is more important than whatever nation you may call home. And that Jesus and his kingdom politics are more important than the partisan politics that we find ourselves in in our current setting. And so for this series, we're calling it a perfect union. You may know that this word comes from the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. The first words of the Constitution are we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Now we're going to talk about a perfect union in a lot of different ways throughout this series. We're going to get a ton of mileage out of this phrase. I'm going to do some play on words and those kinds of things in terms of how it points to what it looks like for us to be engaged faithfully in kingdom, in the kingdom uh, politics. So we're going to talk about things like a perfect union looks like Jesus coming and establishing his perfect kingdom. A perfect union looks like heaven and earth being united together. A perfect union looks like the perfect king who is the God man, God and man perfectly united together in the personhood of Jesus Christ. A perfect union looks like our faith as Christians being united with political engagement and the engagement in the world. A perfect union looks like us as Christians coming together as the kingdom, as a kingdom of priests united together for one common purpose, one common mission, serving and worshiping one common king. Now, I will point this out also as we have that quote still up on the screen. Notice that even as the framers of the Constitution put this phrase together, which is the opening of the Constitution, they realized that the union that they were putting together, even the dream of what the Constitution was and the dream of this new American nation, they understood and realized that they could not create a perfect union. Because they put the word more in there. They say, we're doing this in order to create a more perfect union. Not a perfect union, but a more perfect union. And I point that out because as we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a very different approach about his kingdom. He was claiming that his kingdom was perfect. And he is claiming that he is the perfect king. And as we talk about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be talking about this perfect union that unites the will of God to what the world is supposed to look like throughout this series and look jesus sets this kingship idea up from the very beginning you may know that when we talk about jesus christ we're not christ in particular is not jesus's last name maybe you know that maybe you don't but if you don't now you do know that christ is actually a title it means anointed one it means lord so when we say jesus christ what we're actually saying is jesus the anointed one or jesus the lord And during Jesus' time, Lord was a very politically loaded word because Rome called Caesar Lord. They said, Caesar is the Lord. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the Lord, he is claiming the authority that Rome thought Caesar had. In other words, he is claiming to be king. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. In fact, the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 4, which of course precedes Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew explaining to us how Jesus' ministry begins. And it starts in verse 17. And he says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the first thing that Matthew records Jesus saying is Jesus steps on the scene and says, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what my ministry is about. And the king has brought the kingdom of heaven to, to this place. And then throughout Matthew chapter four, as we begin to read, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and then he announces from the beginning of his ministry the gospel of the kingdom. And then he heals, and then he teaches from town to town, and then we get to Matthew chapter five. And what Matthew chapter five, as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, is telling us is that as Jesus announces the kingdom in chapter four, chapter five, six, and seven is now this is what the kingdom is like. In other words, this is the platform of the kingdom of God. And so as we begin to read, and, it's, and, and, and I think this is important to realize, because as Christians, every political ideology, every party, every platform, has to be evaluated by this ultimate political platform, the kingdom of God. And it's important because every political system, every political ideology, every political party is actually trying to reach their idea of a perfect union. Framers of the Constitution set that apart. We'll talk more about the commonality actually that we have among our two parties uh, next week and in the weeks to come. But in reality, whether you are a conservative or a progressive, whether you consider yourself a Democrat or a Republican, ultimately those two streams are trying to accomplish the same thing just in different ways. They're trying to accomplish what they would refer to as a perfect union. And we'll talk about the reason why we feel so politicized and and polarized here in a minute, but the reality is that if we could just remember that, there is a lot that we actually have in common for most Americans who are seeking this out. But if we were to ask who's right and who's wrong, I think that's really the wrong question to ask, especially for a series like this. Because it's not about conservative or progressive but it's about, as a Christian, how am I practicing my politics and how do my politics line up with the kingdom of God platform? That's the only standard that we are called to in Scripture. And as we flesh out what the proclamation of the kingdom of God looks like, we should be asking ourselves, how does this line up with the way that Jesus established this for us as a kingdom of priests, as this holy nation of Christians, right? And by holy nation, I don't mean the country we live in. I mean, the collection of Christ followers. And I think one of the ways that we can evaluate this, if we're just going to talk about what does this platform look like, and we'll flesh it out in more detail as we go through this, but as we introduce it, it looks like this. Loving God, loving one another, and loving the world. If that sounds familiar to you, you've probably been around north a little bit. Those are the three core values of our church. Love God, love one another, and love the world. In fact, they're the core values of most any church you'll probably ever go to. Because those are the ones that are clear in scripture over and over again that this is who the church is supposed to be and this is what we're doing. Now, the question is, how do you practice your politics in a way that loves God, loves one another, and loves the world? Well, let's take them one by one. First of all, love God. If we are engaging in politics, we should be honoring God as Christians and the way that we engage in politics. Aristotle once said that politics and public policy are designed to instill virtue in citizens that are governed. And so when we think about what it means to love God through our politics, public policy has a way of setting norms and expectations and what we know in in politics as moral order. It establishes a way in which people should live, what is right and wrong. Every policy comes from a sense of what is right and wrong. No matter who you are, if you vote for a policy, or you propose a policy, or you write legislation, it comes from some sense of what is right and wrong, and that's morality. Now, as Christians, we should support and vote for the policies that most directly represent the character of God in all of creation and throughout all the world, as much as we can. So that's how we love God. We also love one another through our politics. One of the ways that we can make sure that we are honoring the character of God in our politics is whether or not we are actually loving our neighbor is are we loving the people who God has created in his image with our politics with our policies with the decisions that we make with who we choose to put in office and by the way this doesn't just mean the people within our neighborhoods or the people within my family or my community or even the people within the nation that we live in it has to do with everybody to the ends of the earth who has been created in the image of God are we loving all of our neighbors in this way and then third We're called to love the world. Our politics should cause flourishing in the world for as many human beings as possible, for as far to the ends of the earth as possible. And that's again not just for our own nation, but of course we have foreign policies as a nation that is very involved in the world and what's going on in the world. We should be supporting those things that cause flourishing for all people everywhere that are created in the image of God. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And this is the dream of the kingdom. This is not just one political dream, just not one platform among many that we can choose from. It is actually the one that is held up that all others will bow down to in the end. Psalm 72, which is known as a coronation psalm. We see these psalms throughout the book of Psalms from time to time, they're known as coronation psalms. And what they are are basically celebrating God, celebrating Jesus as king. And as a result, proclaiming him as king and then displaying what his kingdom does and how it affects the world. Psalm 72 is one of those great ones. I want to ask you to read along with me. This is a little bit longer, so follow along with me. But what I want you to be looking for is how does loving God, loving one another, and loving the world celebrated through this very vivid picture of the king who brings his kingdom to the earth. Psalm 72, verse 8 says this. May he, that is God, really Jesus, have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their lives, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, and may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of mountains may it wave, and may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field." May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. And may the people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Look, I think what you can see is those three things coming to life in this picture from Psalm 72. That there is this celebration about loving God. That God's name would be proclaimed and celebrated and that all nations to the end of the earth would worship him. That all kings and all nations would bow down to the one who is the king of kings. And then we see loving our neighbor in terms of justice. He delivers those from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And then finally, loving the world. There's a picture here that's very vivid about people in the cities blossoming like grass in the field. People in every city, in every nation throughout the earth, not just one section of the field is blossoming, but the entire field blossoms and flourishes as much as possible. And I think as we read this, if we are Christians who believe in the word of God and believe this is true, we should say, Amen, Amen, Amen all throughout this. I really believe that this is what most of us want. If you're a Christian, I mean who doesn't want this? People flourishing everywhere, justice flourishing everywhere, God being glorified and recognized and worshiped everywhere to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. The question is why doesn't this happen more? And it gets back to the idea of how do we get there? And again we have all different ideas about how we get there politically Even among this room, we've got different ideas about how we get there politically. But I think one of the things that we have to call out and recognize is that the setting that we're in right now has forced us to extreme polarization in our politics. We have to be aware of that, how it affects our hearts, how it affects us as we seek Jesus through this. Political scientists have identified this. You've probably identified it every single day of your life as you look into media. But our nation has become increasingly politically polarized over the last several years and over the last few elections or so. But political scientists have identified what they believe to actually be the top three causes for those, the main three causes, and they are this. Number one is social sorting. Social sorting means that we tend to gravitate towards people who look like us, we tend to gravitate towards people who fit our same demographic, who make the same amount of money, who believe the same way as we do, and that reinforces our idea of politics. This is also known as identity politics. Number two, media echo chambers. That not only do we tend to gather in social groups, but we tend to only listen to the media that reinforces the ideas that we already have. And we tend to characterize the other side as purely fake news. My news is pure. My news feed is pure, has no fake news in it. All of that is fake news over there. And then finally, we are dealing with more distinct political platforms. So the political leaders on both sides, whether they are conservatives or progressives, are pushing to the edge of those spectrums continually, and they have been doing that over the past several elections. And so we're now forced to choose between two extremes and two extremely divided political platforms. And the polarization has gotten so intense in some cases that it's gotten to a religious, it's almost gotten to a religious fervor. And if you think about what politics does and what it provides for us today, it all makes sense that actually people sometimes consider or treat politics as their religion. Because politics has begun to provide everything that religion has typically provided for human beings throughout history. The first one is doctrine. Political platforms have become the authoritative doctrine for parties to define who's in or who's out. Who's a real Republican or who's a real Democrat. You may have heard the term rhino. Rhino means Republican in name only. And that's used as a, as, a, as a derogatory term for anybody who claims to be a Republican that doesn't embrace all of the Republican platforms and all of the Republican candidates. On the left side, if you're not progressive enough, you get canceled. You can no longer, cert, you can no longer be an official, you can no longer get elected, you can no longer run for office because you're not progressive enough. It also provides an identity. For many people, their political identity transcends other, every other identity in their lives so that they will only hang out with friends who believe the same way as they do politically. They only have relationships with the same people who, who, who believe the same way as they do. They only let their daughters date guys of the same political party. I know this. I've talked to a bunch of friends of mine, and I'll talk to them, and I tend to just have more conservative friends, and I'll talk to them, and I'll ask them, you know, do you have any friends who are progressives? Almost none of them do. And you say the same thing to, I have some progressive friends as well. They maybe have a little bit more conservative friends because they're in the church and that tends to just kind of be the way it is. But at the same time, they try to avoid that as much as possible because it becomes such a deep-seated identity for them. And finally, or I should say third, politics also provides a community. You know, this has always been the case with politics in America because we've always had parties and they naturally provide communities, but it used to be that those communities and those parties rallied around common political policy objectives. As we've moved further and further into polarization, what has happened is that these communities today actually rally around less actual policies and more just a sense of party identity, in the sense that you're on our side, we're the good people, and those guys are the bad ones that need to be avoided at all costs. They are the enemies and we have to win at all costs. This has led to what political scientists call negative partisanship, which is a phenomenon that's everywhere. Negative partisanship used to be just kind of around political negative ads that would come out during election season. Now it's this phenomenon that characterizes basically everything that the political parties do in reference to how they build momentum. It's prevalent in pundits and ads, but it also is no longer about the issues. It's just about we want to see that side shamed and defeated as much as possible rather than even our side being successful. It actually celebrates the defeat of the other side more than it does actually the successes of its own party. And then finally, politics provides us salvation. In the end... Polarization of politics in our country has created more than just some policies to support. It actually creates um, a, a redemptive narrative of its own. David Koizis says this. He's a Christian political science scientist, and he explains it this way. He says, each of these political ideologies is based upon a specific soteriology. The word soteriology, by the way, is a theological term that means theology of salvation, that is, on a worked-out theory promising deliverance to human beings from some fundamental evil considered to be the source of a broad range of human ills, including tyranny, oppression, anarchy, poverty, and so forth. Political ideologies embody a pseudo-redemptive narrative competing with the biblical story. And I think this helps explain why so much of our political engagement and so much of those who want to influence us in our political thinking is uh, rely on fear-based approaches because if you can create an evil out there that is so bad that you need to be saved from it politics will provide you with a salvation narrative and the more evil that thing is the more decrepit it is the more threatening it is the better because it causes you to deep seed yourself in the salvation narrative of the political party who will protect you from that thing And you might not know this, but only 8% of Americans are actually on the extreme ends of the right and the left. It seems like a lot more than that, doesn't it? If you were to look at the news, basically it seems like everybody who's on the other side is an extreme end. But the 8% are the ones who drive the headlines because they cause the fear, and they get, they get the headlines because they get the eyeballs on the news media that, wants to, that, that networks want us to consume. And so conservatives end up being the ones who are those racist guys that we need to be saved from. And progressives end up being those violent Marxist progressives that we all need to be saved from on the other side. And in the end, the divide continues, the hatred continues, the anger continues all the way down the line. And for all that was said, though, in this quote, I think the thing that we should really be concerned about is that last line there. As that quote still up there? Look at that last line that David Koizis said. He says, look, political ideologies embody a pseudo-redemptive narrative competing with the biblical story. They compete. We know the biblical story is its own story of redemption, right? So this political ideology forms its own story of pseudo-redemption that competes with the biblical narrative. It doesn't feed the biblical narrative. It doesn't submit to the biblical narrative. It actually competes with the biblical narrative in our hearts. So the question that we end up having to ask is, who is it that I'm really trusting to save me, to protect me, to provide for me, and to deliver hope and a future for me? Is it King Jesus, or is it a political figure? Is it the God-man, or is it just a man? We have to be concerned about this, because I think... A lot of us are tempted to buy into the, to the lie that politics will protect us and politics will save us. So we throw our full allegiance behind a party or behind a figure, not realizing what this actually does to our hearts, to our minds, and to our souls. Justin Gibney says this, paints a very real picture, I think, of what it feels like to be a Christian in today's political climate. Those on the right side of the political spectrum say they stand for individual freedom patriotism, and moral order. The left, on the other hand, claims to stand for justice, equality, and inclusion. Conservatives say progressives are immoral because of their positions on abortion, religious liberty, and the like. And then progressives say conservatives are bigoted and lack compassion when it comes to poverty, race, and gender. Both sides have become less tolerant of differing viewpoints and often stamp out candidates and advocates who hold a more nuanced or moderate perspective. Many Christians are conflicted because they believe in freedom, moral order, justice, equality, and inclusion. We want to protect the unborn, and we also want to treat the poor and racial minorities with love and compassion. We also see merit in the criticisms of each side. Yet because of how the issues are presented, Christians are told to either surrender their biblical convictions or neglect their Christ-like compassion. Look, in reality, both of our parties, the way that they are established right now, still do, respect, or still do reflect some aspects and values of the kingdom of God. But again, Jesus is the king of kings, and he didn't come to subvert his kingdom to American politics in the 21st century. His kingdom is completely other than these two things. His kingdom does not fit neatly into Democrat or Republican, conservative, progressive, left, right, or even independent. And I don't know if you agree with the assessment that politics can become an idol, it can become an idol, and has maybe become an idol in the American church today and in American Christianity. But I think there's an easy way to determine that. I'll spend the rest of the time really digging down into this issue right here. What has politics done to our hearts in reference to God and how we've been called to engage in this? We said earlier that politics should cause us to do three things. Love God, or at least we should do three things through our politics. Love God, love our neighbors, and love the world. So the questions we have to ask is, is our political engagement causing us to do that? We're called to love God, but does our political engagement cause us to forget God? In the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You may know that that term righteousness actually is a relational term. It's about how we relate to God. It's about whether or not we fear him, we worship him, we love him, and ultimately, do we trust him? When a political agenda forces us into a place where we have to choose between one thing or the other, who are we going to trust and who are we going to follow? That's why Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 16, 24, no one can serve two masters. And he says this because he knows our hearts. Masters imply allegiance, which means that you will eventually have to choose between one or the other. Eventually, one or the other will lead you in a different direction based on your view, your action, your belief. Which one are you going to follow? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote and we can't support a candidate as Christians. I think we should vote, I think we should support candidates as we feel like we should and we feel like best represent what scripture and how scripture directs us. We have that right, it's a right that many have died to give us and to protect, and it's one that's one of the blessings of living in this country. But at the same time, we have to be aware of the fact that there is a temptation for us to consider politics our functional Lord and Savior. Which takes our affections away from God and Jesus and transfers them onto something else. Forgetting God was often Israel's problem, too. So many times in the Old Testament, you see God saying to Israel, Remember, 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 because it was so easy for them to forget God. And He would tell them, Remember who you were before I delivered you. Remember how I delivered you. Remember how I brought you to myself. Remember now who you are as my beloved holy nation as my kingdom of priests. And most of all, remember who I am and trust me. Because Israel was tempted constantly. Instead of trusting in God to trust in the power and the prestige of other nations and kings that were around them, they were tempted to trust in themselves and their own wisdom. They were tempted to trust in the wealth and the power that they believed that pagan gods gave them. And in the end, this was idolatry on behalf of the Israelites, who gave their trust and who gave their allegiance to something other than their king in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also closes out the Sermon on the Mount by talking about the man who builds his house on the rock versus the man who builds his house on the sifting sand. And he says, the man who builds his house on the rock is the wise man. And see this, the rock is the words that I have taught you. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, goes all the way back to the beginning, he says, these words that I have taught you through this sermon are the rock. Build your house, build your life on these. The one who builds his house on the sifting sand of the temporary things that are passing away That man is the foolish man, and those things will fall apart. What is eternal? What is temporal? What actually matters in the end? So we're called to love God. We're also called to love one another. And the question that we have to ask in this is, does our political engagement cause us to love people or to ridicule, dehumanize, and even hate people who disagree with us? Jesus was once asked what the greatest commandment was. You may remember his answer. He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he added without prompting and the second one is like it love your neighbor as yourself in other words what he's saying is that out of an overflow of your love for me you will naturally love your neighbor and actually one way to see whether or not you are loving me is whether or not you love your neighbor and for me I got to tell you that's comforting in a lot of ways I get encouragement from this not because I'm great at loving my neighbor but sometimes I'm wondering if I'm loving God with my thoughts and the things that I'm doing and it's hard to discern that sometimes But I do know it's a lot easier to discern whether or not I'm loving my neighbor. I can see that through some self-evaluation, and other people can definitely see that. And Jesus ties those two things together. And so are we loving our neighbor through our engagement in politics? Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And then in Matthew chapter 7, he says, "So So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We know that as the golden rule. But I think these are really good litmus tests for whether or not we are effectively loving our neighbors through our politics. Are we actively making peace? Are we picking fights and causing conflict? Are we causing division? Are we making peace with our political engagement? This doesn't always mean that we're going to agree on everything politically. Again, just in this room of people and just with those online, we probably disagree on maybe quite a few things politically. But the question is not so much whether we agree on those things, but what happens when people disagree with you on your issues? How do you treat them and how do you respond? Politics becomes a false religion when it causes us to violate the calling of Jesus on our lives, to be people who love our neighbor in the name of Jesus and provide the same grace that Jesus Christ has provided for us. John Tyson, who's a pastor from New York, tweeted this this past week, and I think it's really true, it's insightful, It's a good diagnostic question for us to consider he said this how you treat people when they disagree with you is one of the greatest revealers of the heart and then he said in looking at this election season in america we are headed into a season of massive revelation i got to tell you um i see this a lot because i have a lot of christian friends who are on facebook and Facebook does matter, by the way, for your Christian witness. It's not just something that you can throw up there and say words, empty, empty phrases, and be as mean as you want to be behind a keyboard. It actually does matter what you do. It's about your witness. It's about your character being displayed to all the people online who know that you're a Christian. But I will say this, we have gotten to the point where we see so much of this going on that anybody who is a Democrat is automatically a communist who wants to kill police officers and burn cities down, and everyone who is a Republican is a racist xenophobe who wants to shoot people of color in the streets, and it's gotten completely ridiculous. It's gotten to a place where not only are we not loving our neighbor, but we are dehumanizing groups of people just because they disagree with us politically. And I gotta tell you this, when you dehumanize groups of people, who are created in the image of God, you offend their maker, and that is sin. When Jesus spoke these words about loving our neighbor, you may know that he was asked by one of the scribes, one of the religious scribes, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into the parable of the Good Samaritan. With a group of Jews who are all around him, knowing the hatred that went back centuries between the Samaritans and the Jews, Jesus uses the Samaritan as the example of the one who actually does what is right in loving his neighbor and actually caring for a Jewish man who was left for dead on the side of the road. And at the end of the parable, it's obvious what Jesus' point is. Your neighbor is the one even whom you may despise the most, and you're called to love them sacrificially in this way. So for the white conservative, that's the Antifa guy who's blaming everything that's wrong in this world on white people. For the progressive, that's the alt-right white supremacist that you're called to love in the midst of this. It's radical, unbelievable, unmerited love and grace. It's the same way Jesus loves us. And so we're finally called to love the world. Does our political engagement cause us to love the world or to fear the world, you know. We talk about loving our neighbors. It's also the kind of thing where, as we've talked about before, when we love our neighbors, we are we are we are we are working for and actively lobbying for the flourishing of all people all over the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his followers, "You are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth." You know that salt and light have both have preserving are both preserving agents. And so the metaphor that Jesus is using here is, look, you are the salt of the world that's supposed to have distinctiveness. You add flavor to the world that tastes different than what the rest of the world looks like. But then he also warns against this. Don't allow that salt to lose its flavor and just be blended with everything else because if salt loses its flavor, it no longer has its distinctiveness, its preserving effects, and it no longer has the distinctiveness that it's supposed to have to function correctly. So Jesus says you are like the salt of the, of the earth. And the way that you live that out is not right or left, is not Jewish or Samaritan, it's not, it's, not, it's not zealot or Sadducee, it's actually to live out the kingdom of God in a different way. And then he talks about light. Light is what dispels the darkness, exposes the darkness. But then he warns against that light being covered up. And when we get into positions where we are fearful and we get so polarized in our politics, ultimately what you hear, what you hear or see happen is that we default to this idea of the ends justifying the means. So that yeah, there might be a bunch of junk being done, but as long as we get to this means, it's all gonna be worth it. What Jesus is saying is that light is supposed to expose all of that. And it can't be compromised by a mindset that says the ends justify the means. And when we start to live by the fear of the world, looking at the world that we are supposed to love and fearing it, because we're afraid of what it might take from us. We're afraid of how it might harm us. We're not able to love sacrificially. This is why Jesus said to us, because he knows He knows what we go through. He knows how scary it is to live in the world that we live in that's full of sin and brokenness and evil, and people who are actively trying to do evil. And so he says this, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we are told repeatedly throughout Scripture not to fear the world, but to love and to fear Jesus because he has overcome the world. And it's important for us to hear especially in this moment because I think there is a narrative of fear that permeates everywhere in our culture and this is never more true than when it comes to politics and especially during an election year. Whether you look at social media or media in general, every headline tends to be as scary as it can possibly be. And when people are taught to fear each other, when we're taught to fear someone else's ideas and to fear their motives, you cannot love them effectively. And if you're going to be manipulated by a culture of fear, we have to actually speak truth into that and realize exactly what's going on. Because media companies invest billions of dollars to understand human psychology. And one thing they found is that human beings consume more when they are angry and when they are afraid. And now I'm not saying that every media person is out to get you and every media network is a fear-mongering network. But what I am saying is that they know this and it's really hard to resist the temptation not to push that button whenever they can. Because they know it's, it's like a cash machine. It automatically generates revenue every time they try to scare us and every time they make us angry. And so you watch a news show and it's essentially scare you, comfort you, commercial. Scare you, comfort you, commercial all day long. Watch a 24 hour news show, uh, station. It happens repeatedly over and over again. 80% of it is I'm gonna, we're gonna scare you with a headline Then we're gonna comfort you by saying this is how you do it according to our perspective, and then we're gonna go to a commercial so that you can buy stuff from our marketers. It happens on social media as well. And so narratives get spun and exaggerated to scare us. Podcasts get downloads, online articles get clicks, and social media feeds manipulate what we believe about our politics and what we believe about people on the other side of our politics. And the media wins in the end. Political pundits and commentators become religious prophets, and our political figures become the kings and the saviors, and we live in an age of idolatry as a result, and the common decency of humanity and the foundations of our nations are eroded every single day. How many times have you heard the phrase, this is the most important election in the history of the world? And you never hear it from a standpoint of like, because there's so much opportunity on the other side of this election to do so much good. It's always a doomsday scenario. This is the most important election in the history of the world because if we vote the wrong guy in, the country's gonna fall off the cliff into an abyss. We're being scared into submission. And the people of God are not supposed to live that way. And as we give into this, a narrative is being built upon forcing us into political camps and fearing the other side because polarization wins the day. And here's something else that brands recognize and stations and networks recognize. uh, 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 Polarization creates brand loyalty as well. These things have real consequences We were created as a nation that had checks and balances in place which forced us to have to work across the aisle bipartisanly to actually enact laws and to build a nation. We're at a place now where one side does not want to let the other side even score one goal because it might look like they might win. And the American people suffer as a result. I could go on and on about that but that's not what this is about. This is instead about the fact that I'm a pastor and I've been called to be a pastor here at North Bible Church. And my concern is for the hearts of the people who are here. And my concern is that one of the greatest threats that we're facing, I believe, right now is how divided we are and how much we are being caused to be formed by a political process rather than by the kingdom of God. So I'm concerned that you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but that you understand what it means to give to God what is God's. And that you have the wisdom and discernment to understand the difference. Jesus asked this penetrating question that I think we're going to dwell on this entire series, and we need to continue to ask ourselves. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And so that's what we're doing through this series. So that we can be discipled not by Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or Vox or Slate or Breitbart, but that we can be be discipled by Jesus Christ who is our king. And so we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and we're going to listen to what he has to teach us about the kingdom. And my prayer and my hope for all of us is that we will be challenged, that we will be transformed, and that we will be changed through this. Because I believe that change is necessary on this front. And my hope is that as we get to the end of this, as a result, fear and confusion and anger won't characterize how we respond to our neighbors, even those who disagree with us. It won't characterize how we respond to our politics. But instead, we will learn to love God, love our neighbor, and love the world as a result. So I want to pray for us. And what I want to pray pray through is a prayer of allegiance. A prayer of allegiance to our King Jesus above all other things that war for the allegiances in our heart In this world I want to invite the band to join us as we finish and respond with a song of allegiance as well let's pray father God you have created us and loved us before we even knew what was good for us and we understand and we realize that even there are times in our lives right now where we think we know what is good for us and in the end it just ends up hurting us it hurts our relationship with you it hurts our relationship with other people And we ask, Spirit, that you would reveal those things in our hearts and that you would do the hard and necessary work that needs to happen to expose those things that have gotten our allegiance and taken our allegiance away from our King who is Jesus. I believe that many of, those in the, many of these in this room and many of those watching online, it is their desire to follow Jesus, King Jesus, with every fiber of their being but we also admit and we also know that sometimes we get lost in that. Sometimes our hearts and our minds and our souls get messed with in a way that we don't even realize. And so we pray for your truth, for the spirit of truth to permeate our hearts and to show us what is clearly true. Give us an understanding of what it looks like for us to live out this wonderful dream of the kingdom that Jesus presented on that hillside 2,000 years ago that was meant to change the world. It's still possible. It still happens. It still takes place in this world. And Lord, you mean it to happen among us and through us. And so help us to see where the temporary things are the temporary things that are fading away. Help us to discern between what is Caesar's and what is God's. And to give only to God what belongs to God. We pray that you would enlighten us and and give us transformation and confirmation and comfort and joy throughout this series as we listen to your words, Lord Jesus. Refreshen us again. I pray pray that these words that we have probably read through a hundred times would not become too familiar that they don't make a difference in our lives, but we would see them afresh, we would see them new, and they would be life-changing the way that they were meant to. Lord Jesus, most of all, we pray that our hearts would be... in allegiance to you that when we say jesus christ who is the lord that we would mean it with every fiber of our being that would be true of the way that we live and the way that we speak and the way that we respond we pray all these things in his name king jesus amen
0: in just a moment we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts
1: Thank you all for joining us this morning. Thank you for joining us online as well. I just want to say to you, the, the, the blessing of Moses was to say to the people, may, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may he make his face to shine upon you and give you rest. We need rest and peace in these days. And so I pray that the Lord would go with you and that his face would shine upon you this week. Until we see you next week, God bless. Love you guys.